0: Let's pray together. Father, I know that all of us would like to stand where I stand just to say thank you for keeping us. Thank you for giving us measures of peace and joy and love and life. And so I speak on behalf of all of us and the choir. Thank you for keeping us. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way and when he falls, he will not be cast headlong because the Lord upholds his hand. So receive our thanks for your keeping power. I ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for inviting me and letting me come. Thank you for Pastor Kidd for all the staff especially for Bobby who's been hosting me in this weekend. It's been a thrill to be a part of the conference yesterday and now to cap this off to be with you in this worship service is really remarkable. In fact, uh, one of the, uh, I pulled my phone out because I'm gonna read you an email. One of the gifts that my church gave me when I left two weeks ago after 33 years, was a promise that the staff, they had assigned one person for every day, would pray for me every day for the next year. And uh, Amanda is appointed for today. And Amanda wrote me what she was praying for you, because I told her on Tuesday where I was going to be this Sunday, I want to read you what you're being prayed for. You can just decide if it's happening or not, or if it's going to happen. Okay, this is what she said. Father in heaven, your mercies are new every morning. Would you cast them on Pastor John as he wakes? I read this 715 this morning. I emailed her back and said, it's answered, being answered. <laughs> Even the new mercies that he uh, has not experienced before on the Lord's Day morning, that will be sweet, a sweet surprise for him. Surely many of this West Coast flock are forever brothers and sisters. So would you give Pastor John a sense of kinship with these dear ones he is with this morning. Give him a special joy in proclaiming your word to this local body of believers. Tune his heart to sing your praise in their worship in the, in the sermon. Give him spirit-led words, winsome gestures, body language. <laughs> I've never had anybody pray for my body language before. <laughs> Give him body language that would lead to your greater glory. And fill Pastor John and bless him, even as he is pouring himself out for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs) Thank you, Amanda. So what I decided I would like to do with you is to uh, leave a deposit behind that was put in me when I was 22 in Pasadena. So I was out here for three years, ages ago. I was 1968. And the truth that I want to leave with you is this, and then put as much Bible under it as we have time to do. The truth is, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Or Christ is most magnified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Now that truth has probably had as great an impact on my life and ministry as any truth I know. So if I have one time to speak to you, I thought, okay, this one has had a mammoth effect on me. Let me see if I can help them know what I mean by it and then put some Bible under it. So let me finish stating the point. Uh, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. And since God created the universe to be glorified in, therefore our task is to pursue our satisfaction in Him all the time. That's the whole package. And it's, it's, there's a couple of controversial parts to it, which is why we need to go to the Bible and defend it. There are three parts to it. Number one, God created the universe to be glorified in. He means for the universe to make him look great. The heavens are telling the what? Why, he made them that way, that's why. He means for the universe to feature him. This universe is about Him. It's all about Jesus. I was reading it on the screen over there. Centering, I think the brother said, like a sun with the planets. So we're the planets. He's the sun. He created the universe to be that way. So that's that's the first one. The second one is, He is seem to be glorious in our lives most when we are most satisfied in Him as opposed to everything else, especially satisfied in the midst of trials. I mean, it's easy to look satisfied when there's no problems. If you look like you're satisfied in Jesus when it's bad, He looks good. He looks really good at that moment. That's number two. And the number three three is, if that's true, then your lifelong vocation is to pursue that satisfaction in Him all the time. And people get a little bit edgy when, when I say that. Like, you're telling us to pursue our maximum satisfaction all the time. That doesn't sound like self denial, doesn't sound like the cross bearing I've heard. What's the deal? So, that's, those are the three pieces. And let me just say a, a word, a, a short word, maybe, about about the first uh, two, and then a little bit more about the third one. God created the universe in order to be glorified. Here's a verse or two. I already gave you Psalm 19:1. What about Isaiah 43, 6 and 7? Goes like this. Bring my sons from far, my daughters from the ends of the earth, Everyone whom I formed and made, whom I created for my glory. Now, I think that's really clear. I'm gathering a people to myself because I made them for my glory. That is, I mean for my glory. I'm talking for God now. My glory, God's glory, are, is to be seen, reflected off of this people. That's why I made them. Now, here's a little little bit of ambiguity in the word glorify or magnify or um, just take magnify. Telescopes magnify and microscopes magnify. Now, if you think of your magnifying of God as doing what a microscope does, you're a blasphemer. And if you think of your magnifying God doing what a telescope does, you're a worshiper. Now, how does a microscope magnify? It takes a teeny little thing and makes it look bigger than than it is. Okay, you are gonna do that for God? I don't think so teeny little God and you go make him look bigger than he is. No way. Don't magnify God like a microscope. What does a telescope do? A telescope takes something that looks teeny, like a star, teeny little prick in the sky, bigger than our solar system, and it makes it look like it really is. That's what a telescope does. That's what you do, right? That's what our lives are for. In most of the people you relate to, God is small. Zero almost. Little teeny God, pull him out of your pocket when you need him every now and then. He's a very small factor in their life. What are you for? You are to live in a way, talking in a way, feel in a way, act in a way toward them so that God gets bigger and bigger in their lives. You make him look good. So that's point number one. I'm just gonna hope you agree with that one. I could give you dozens more verses to defend that God created you, all of you, believer or unbeliever in this room, and this city, and this nation, and this planet, and this universe for his glory, to make him look like he really is beautiful, infinite power, wise, just, good, loving, merciful, he is the greatest being that there is, and we were designed to reflect that and make people move toward that. Amen. Now, here's, here's the second one God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. Now, the pastor read Philippians 1. If you have a Bible, you might want to go there because I'm going to linger here a minute or two, or maybe five. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1, verses, just going to look at two verses, maybe three verses 20 and 21. I preached on this verse when I candidated for my pastorate in 1980. And they, they hired me. Amazing! I hadn't had any pastoral experience at all when I came to that church, and and uh, they were merciful toward me, and kept me for thirty-three years. And I thank God for it. This was my text, and this was my point. So I'll just so the two verses are. My earnest desire—I'm picking it up right in verse twenty. My earnest desire is that Christ would be. Now, your Bible may say honored. I'm just going to use the word magnified. That's a good translation of megaluno. You can even hear it, mega, mega. Made to look good, God. My earnest desire, Paul says, is that Christ would be honored, Christ would be magnified in my life, in my body, whether by life or by death. And then he gives this ground statement. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, everything flows for me from the connection between 20 and 21. Because you've got this... I want my, my body, and that is the way I live out my life in the city or wherever I am, I want to live out my life in such a way that Christ is shown to be magnificent in my living and dying. He wants to live, and while he lives, people look at the life and say, Christ is great, and he wants to die in a way that when they look at his dying, they say, Christ is great. And then he explains in verse 21 how that could be. Now we don't have time for a big exposition, so let's just take the, the death pair. So living and dying are in verse 20, and now he talks about whether I live or whether I die. In my, uh, my To live is Christ, verse 21, and to die is gain. So you see the parallel? To live parallels living in verse 20 and to die parallels death in verse 20. Only, he says, concerning death in verse 21, to die is gain. Now, let's just leave out the life pair and and read it as though that weren't there. My eager expectation is that Christ would look magnificent in my body when I die for... To me to die is gain. How does that work? How does dying being gain for me make Christ look great in my dying? That's what he says. Christ will look great, magnificent, magnified in my dying if for me to die is gain. You you can figure this out. You're lying in a hospital bed. You know your hours are few. Families around you, nurses and doctors are hovering, maybe a few acquaintances don't know you as well, and they're watching you die. And if at that moment, when you know within a few hours, everything on this planet that gave you joy is gone. And all you've got is Jesus. Sex is over. Parties are over. The career is over. The marriage is over. You're not going to be married in heaven. The Bible says so. No marriage or given in marriage in heaven. That's a, that's a joy for this life, not the next. something better in the next. <laughs> that's going to be good. Better? Yes. How at that moment will you make Christ look good? By communicating, I can let this go. I can let... You can look right in their eyes with tears flowing down. I can let you go. Because I've got Him. Amen. And if you really feel that, if you're so satisfied in Jesus at that moment, that you can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, Martin Luther's song. If you can let them go and they can see radiance on your face, guess who looks good in that moment? Jesus looks good in that moment. So my argument is, Christ is most magnified in that moment in you when you are most satisfied in Him. He would not look good if you said to him, I don't want to come to you because what really matters to me is my career. I don't want to come to you because what really matters to me is food and drink and sex and friends and good things, not just sin, good things matter to me more than you. You you wouldn't make him look good. He'd look secondary or lower than that. What makes him look good is when you are stunningly satisfied in him. So that you can, you can let it go. And if that's true in death, it's true in life. You go over to chapter 3. How does it, how does it go in verses 7 and 8? Um, I count everything as loss. For the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we've already signed off on it, right? It's not going to happen when you get in the hospital bed. It's going to be too late then. If you haven't done it already, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for his sake. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we, that's what I think Paul meant when he said, to live is Christ. To live is Christ, and now we've got to die is Christ, meaning I'm so satisfied in Christ, I can go to be with Him and not begrudge the loss of everything on the planet. So that's my second point. God is most, Christ is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him, which leaves us now with this controversial conclusion. At least, a lot of people I talk to find this very controversial to say, Therefore, all right, I got these two big conclusions. God created the world to be glorified in. We glorify him best when we're most satisfied by him. Therefore, go for it. Maximum satisfaction 24-7 in Jesus. And when I say maximum, I mean maximum. I'm talking about... Satisfaction of the fullest and the longest kind. Lest anybody mistake, if you offer me satisfaction that's 98% full and lasts 800 years, I would say, no thank you. Why would I want that? 98% satisfaction lasts for 800 years? why would I want that? Psalm 1611 has a better deal. You show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. How full is that? What percent? That's right. You're good. 100. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures for evermore not 800 years no thank you not 800 800 million ages of ages never ending i got a deal if you if there is a way in this plan on this planet to find that i'm going for it i've stood up all over the country and i've said to folks if you can come to me after this service and offer me even a conceivably better deal than that i'll take it I'll leave Christ. I'll leave Christ. If you can improve upon full and forever in Jesus, I'll take it. You, you can't conceive of fuller than full, and you can't conceive of longer than forever. It's not even conceivable, let alone offerable. So I'm not worried that any of you got a deal in your pocket that's gonna make me non Christian. I have arrived, I'm home. I am home. I know where I'm going. You can't improve on what I've been offered in Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to push on this conclusion. Spend your whole life pursuing this satisfaction. If you are feeling like 70% of it and 30% is in the world, work on that. Kill that. Fight for that. Okay, now the rest of our time here, and I don't know, the rest of our time is on Bible verses to support that conclusion. Because you might, you know, logic is nice. Logic is nice. Oh, you got two premises. You drew a conclusion. That's logic. And, and it looks valid. I think it is valid. But people will usually die for logic. People die for God. People die for the Word of God. So I'm going to put Bible now. This is a Bible church, right? Okay. I'm going to give you, I don't know, seven, maybe. Here we go. Number one, these are arguments from the Bible for that conclusion that you should now go out of this church, spend the rest of your life pursuing fullest and longest pleasure. Pleasure, I'm talking pleasure in God. In God. I don't... I don't mind using the word pleasure because some of you might say, Don't you mean joy? You mean you don't mean pleasure. I mean pleasure, that's low. That's food and you know, physical stuff. Well, that isn't what the Bible says. In your presence are what forevermore? Pleasures forevermore. The Bible is utterly indiscriminate in its joy language. You got happiness used sometimes, joy used sometimes, pleasure used sometimes, desire you sometimes, satisfaction you sometimes, and they're all jumbled together. So I don't make those distinctions, and if you do, that's fine. Just make sure you, you use all of them, you know? If joy means high and uh, non-related to circumstances for you and happiness kinda of comes and goes because it's related to circumstances, that's fine. You can use the words that way. Just make sure we're pursuing it all in Jesus. Okay, argument number one, the Bible commands me to pursue this joy. This is simple. It commands me to. Psalm 100, serve the Lord with what? Gladness. It's a sin not to do that. That's a command. Go for gladness in your serving the Lord. A begrudging service of the Lord doesn't make the Lord look good. He looks boring. You go to church and try to serve the Lord because you have to and you don't want to. How does Jesus look? Terrible. Psalm uh, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. These are commands. I, had a, I was in a seminar one time with a very prominent missionary spokesman. And we were talking about motives for missions. <clears throat> and I made my case that you should pursue missions to maximize your joy in God. I think you should do everything to maximize your joy in God. And and she stood up. I love this woman to death. I won't tell you who it is because you might know who it is. And I wouldn't want to put her in a bad light because she's a hero of mine. And she said, well, John, I I don't think it's really helpful to say pursue joy in missions. I think we should say pursue obedience in missions. And And then the joy can. You know what I said? I said, I think that's like saying you should not pursue apples. You should pursue fruit. Now, can you compute in your head what I'm thinking? You got that? Can you figure that out? She says, don't pursue joy equal apples. Pursue fruit equal obedience. And the reason that works is because what is obedience? God tells you something to do, you do it. What did he tell you to do? Pursue joy. That's one of the apples. That's one of the fruit. You You can't say, don't do apples, do fruit. That doesn't make sense. Don't do obedience, don't pursue joy. He told you to pursue joy. I just read you three verses. Delight yourself in the Lord. You say, I'm gonna pursue obedience, not that verse. What? That verse said pursue joy. So you can't pursue obedience without pursuing joy because he told you to pursue joy. Okay, that's argument number one. It's commanded in the Bible. Here's number two. God threatens, this is kind of scary, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. I'll read you the verse. This is Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with gladness of heart, therefore you will serve your enemies. That just makes you say, whoa, joy is serious. In fact, C.S. Lewis one time said, joy is the serious business of heaven. A lot of people equate serious with sad or boring or glum. (laughs) I don't. Serious means I'm on it. I am on it with all my power. I'm going for joy. And I'm not going to settle for anything like 98% or 800 years. And and this really ups the ante, it seems to me, in Deuteronomy 28, 47, where it says, since you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy, I'm going to let you serve your enemies. If you don't think I'm worth being served for joy, try them. Okay, that's argument number two, he threatens us with terrible things if we think he's not worth serving with joy. Number three, the nature of faith, just what is faith? The nature of faith teaches us to pursue our joy in Jesus. Now, I have a verse or two in mind. Here's, Here's one. John 6, 35 goes like this. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, would you agree with me that the way that verse is structured is in parallel, like this. I'm the bread of life. That's that's the setup. And then he says two things. Whoever comes, you got the coming, that's the verb. Whoever comes to me will not hunger. And then, and then the parallel is, whoever believes in me will never thirst. Like, same thing, right? Whoever comes will never hunger. Whoever believes will never thirst. Now, if I lay those on top of each other, like coming and believing, they explain each other, I think. Coming is a, is a picture of movement, but he's in heaven. We don't get a little closer to him like this, and now I've come to him. That's not not at all what he means. You come with your heart. You come with your will, your desires, your coming. So if you come to me, if you embrace me, if you come to drink from me, then you won't thirst. And then he explains without a metaphor. If you believe, oh, 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 you meant believe. That's what come is. You meant embrace by believing, trusting. If you trust me, if you embrace me as trustworthy, you'll never hunger. Now, if that's accurate, if you're with me in that understanding of that verse, I think I can define faith. Faith, in that verse, belief, in that verse, is a coming of the heart to Jesus as the bread of life and the living water to have the soul so satisfied in Him that it's true, we don't hunger and we don't thirst for anything after that. We sang that. We sang that. So what is faith? A lot of people think of faith as just believing some truths about Jesus. Like He's God or He died for sinners. The devil knows all that. He hates it. He doesn't embrace it. He doesn't come to it. He doesn't rest in it. He's not happy because of it. But that's what faith is. Faith sees Jesus and all that he did and it says yes. So I think the very nature of faith implies pursuing satisfaction in Jesus pursuing soul satisfaction so that when everything, when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. That's argument number three. Here's four, the nature of evil teaches us to pursue our satisfaction in God. Here is a verse about evil, namely Jeremiah 2, 12, 12 and 13. It goes like this. Be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. For my people have committed two great evils. Now, what are they? What's evil? Here they come. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Evil number one. And they have hewn out, dug out cisterns, broken cisterns, wells that can hold no water. Okay, now what is evil? Evil is coming up to the fountain of God and tasting it and saying, "Eh." and turning over here to the dirt, going down, put your face in the dirt, trying to get the water. That's evil. That's a really helpful description of evil. If You're gonna preach against evil? That's a good way to preach against it. Why would you do that? There's a fountain. I mean, we should just, we want to cry from the housetops in Los Angeles. Why are you putting your face in the dirt? And their answer is going to be because it tastes good. It tastes like sugar brown sugar sucking on the dirt. And we know that's not true, it's going to kill them. And what we want to do is describe, no, there's a fountain of living water. There's a feast spread for the children of God. It's free for everybody who will have it as their treasure. Turn, turn back to your fountain. Don't leave the fountain. And what that definition of evil does is show that what's horrible and outrageous in the universe is when God is not embraced as our satisfaction. It just makes him look so bad. If you devote your whole life to getting all your satisfaction from anti-God things and non-God things, you're making God look terrible. You're blackballing God. You're casting a vote of no confidence against him. You're saying you don't count. You're just not adequate. You can't satisfy my life. That's a horrible thing to say about God. That's evil. That's the essence of evil. Let me, let me give you, I want, to, I want to press on this for just a minute. Here's another verse. You all know this verse. Uh, Romans 3:23. All have, what? Sinned and fall short of? Okay. Now, what's the relationship between sinning and the glory of God? And in that verse, the language, the traditional language that's used is, we fall short of it. But what does that mean? What does that mean, fall short of it? Well, I'll give you a clue of what I think it means. I think Romans 1.23 is the best explanation of Romans 3.23. Romans, because the literal word in verse 23 of chapter 3 is lack. All have sinned and lack the glory of God. Well, what do you mean lack? Well, one twenty three. They exchanged the glory of God for idols, for four-footed beasts, for images, and I would say in the 21st century, the image that they exchanged God for most is the one in the mirror. So they exchanged the glory of God. Now this is very much like Jeremiah, isn't it? They, they, they offered the glory of God as their treasure, and they look at it, and they take it, and they, and they sell it. They, they trade it, they exchange it. For what? For themselves. I want to be God, I want to be glorious. I want you to look at me as glorious. I don't care whether you look at God as glorious. You can have that, I want you to be, I wanna be somebody. I don't wanna live so that he looks like somebody. So I think, you go back to 3.23, all have sinned and do that, all have sinned and traded off, exchanged the glory of God. The, The nature and essence of sin is to prefer anything over God prefer anything above God. So my conclusion for number four is the nature of evil points to the fact that we should pursue our satisfaction in God. Number five, I got seven of these so you can pace yourself how far we got to go. Number five, the, the nature of conversion Teaches us to pursue our joy in God so you should think back now on how you got saved and I'll read to you how you got saved <laughs> you can test yourself Matthew 13 verse 44 short one of the shortest parables in the Bible one verse the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure yes it is hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's a picture of a man walking through life with treasures in anything but God, and by grace, his eyes are open, maybe at a church meeting, maybe at his mother's knee, Maybe listen to Billy Graham or some radio preacher. And suddenly, he stubs his toe on a, on a chest. And he looks down, he opens the chest. Millions and millions of dollars in gold pieces in the chest. And according to the laws of the time, you have whatever's in the field if you own the field. So he covers it up, over the field. He sells his his house. He sells his car. He sells his hi-fi. What do they call it today? Stereo. He he sells his phone. Yes, you can do this on Craigslist overnight for $400. He sells it all and he buys that field because he found a treasure that makes everything else look less valuable. That's a parable about King Jesus coming into your life the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, the kingdom of heaven is Jesus, the king is there for you as your king. So, attest yourself. I don't mean, I don't believe in perfection. I'm, I'm chief of sinners in this room, but when you got saved, when you got converted, that happened to you. And it might have been just the seed of the feeling of, he's more valuable than anything. But somebody put a gun to your head and said, Jesus or marriage, Jesus or whatever. If it's a real test, you'd say, Jesus. Bam, home free, make my day. To be converted is to stumble upon a treasure called Jesus that turns all other treasures into dust by comparison. And I think that is important to say by comparison. I, I think human relationships are precious. I think health is precious. I think having a job is precious. I think having a place to live is precious. And these, these are goods that God wants us to have. But in relation to Jesus... They are as nothing. So that's number five, the nature of conversion teaches us to pursue. Number six, sounds funny, but I'll, I mean, it sounds perplexing, but I'll say it. The call for self-denial teaches us to pursue our pleasure in Jesus. Now you might think, whoa. I think the call for self-denial contradicts your theology. (laughs) I've had people say that over and over again to me. You you go around the country saying, pursue your joy, pursue your joy, pursue your joy. Excuse me, have you ever read Jesus' command to deny yourself? I said, yeah, yeah, I have. So let me read it to you. And we'll stop where they usually stop, and then we'll keep reading where I usually stop. Here we go, this is Mark 8, verses 34 to 36. Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself, amen, not gonna contradict Jesus. Let him deny himself and take up his cross, that's an instrument of execution, death to self. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm believing this, Jesus. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, that's where my critics usually stop. Stop right there and say, see? You're just not preaching that. I say, well, look, let's read the next verse and see whether I'm preaching that. Here's the next verse. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Now, what's the argument there? You don't want to lose your life So be sure not to save it. I see the perplexity on your face. That's what he says, isn't it? Come on. Whoever would save his life will lose it. You don't want to lose it, so don't save it. Keep going. For what does, oops, I skipped a phrase. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And you do want to save it, so lose it. That's the argument. I'm not playing games. That's the way he talks. This is our Jesus. He, he, you know, when they, when they came to him, these, these uh, representatives of the Pharisees, and they were supposed to snatch him and take him away, and they came back without him, and they said, nobody talks like this man. <laughs> That's true. So what's the argument for why you should deny yourself? Because if you don't, you lose your life and you don't want to, so don't. Don't fail to deny yourself. What's the argument? Don't fail to deny yourself because if you deny yourself, you gain your life and you wanna gain your life. Jesus is arguing against ultimate self-denial and for temporary self-denial. If you believe in ultimate self-denial, you're anti-God because you'd be saying, God, what I would like or be willing to have is never seeing you again. I'll never go there. I want Jesus forever. So if Jesus tells me to have me forever, you've got to deny yourself. I'm all over that. Because I'm after full and lasting pleasure. Not temporary. See, denying yourself is I wrote these down. It's like denying yourself tin so you can have gold. Somebody says, I got tin for you. And the other says, I got gold for you. You deny yourself tin. I'll take gold. You deny yourself mud pies. You know to have a holiday at the sea. That's the language taken from C.S. Lewis. He said, we are are so easily pleased. We're like little children making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. So what's this little kid supposed to deny himself? Stop making those mud pies. Hop in the car. I don't want to. I'm having a great time. But you can't imagine what I'm offering you. You can't imagine getting the car. And if you trust mom and dad, you get in the car. And you go to the beach and you Okay, that was a good deal. It's like denying yourself poison so you can have the choicest wine, even if the poison tastes the sweetest thing you've ever had on the planet. Sin is poison. It's like denying yourself, like Moses said, the fleeting pleasures of Egypt, so you can have everlasting pleasures. So, don't anybody go out of here and say, John Piper doesn't believe in self-denial. I not only believe in self denial, I believe in martyrdom for Jesus. That's the quickest way to joy. Number seven, the nature of the Christian ministry shows us we should pursue our joy in God. And I have one. Massively important verse in mind for me as a pastor, namely 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. What is, what is the calling of a pastor? A negative and a positive. Negative, we don't lord it over your faith. We're not lords. We work with you. We come along beside you and work for what? Your joy. A pastor is not doing his job if he's not thinking of it as, I'm gonna give my life for the joy of my people. The fullest and longest joy. He may, he may like a good mom, may give some horrible tasting medicine to a kid because she loves the kid, make him well. A pastor may give you some bad news sometimes, may discipline you at times, but he's all over your joy. He wants you to be eternally and fully happy. So let me close. That was seven. Seven arguments for, let me restate the argument and then end with an illustration. Uh, God created the universe for his glory so that we would make him look great. The, number two, the way to make him look great is that when we're most satisfied in him, especially in suffering, he is most glorified in us. Third, here's some biblical evidences that we should therefore pursue full and lasting glory, a joy in him forever. Now, here's, let me circle back to how to glorify God by being satisfied in God. I've been married 44 years, and let's pretend that I can hold 44 roses in my hand. That may be too many, I've never tried. I've done 25, but not 44. They're pretty pricey too. (laughs) But I got 44 roses behind my back. Ring the doorbell, gonna surprise my wife, gonna take her out. She didn't know anything about this, got the babysitter all lined up, everything, all right. the doorbell, which I never do, you know, she's gonna be puzzled. She opens the door, puzzled look on her face. Johnny, I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I said, it's my duty. I read the book on how to be a husband husbands dutifully get flowers on the anniversary i did it you are loved <laughs> that's the wrong answer that's the wrong answer to the question why did you but but you laughed at duty everywhere i've given that illustration people laugh at duty and you should you should why duty's a good thing You're gonna gonna pray over a Marine in a minute, right? That's a good thing. Marines have duty. They got a job to do. Not an easy job, right? Gonna do my duty for God, for country, for whatever that person believes in. I'm gonna do the duty. Duty's not a, a laughable thing, always. In my story, it's laughable. Why? I'll tell you why, by retelling the story. Okay, ding-dong. She opens the door. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? Because nothing makes me happier than buying you flowers and spending the night with you. So I've arranged for a babysitter and we're going out. Here's the flowers because this makes my day. Not in a thousand years would she say, You are so selfish. All you ever think of is what makes you happy. (laughs) This makes your day. What about my day? Why why wouldn't she say that? I'll, I'll tell you why. Because my being satisfied in her glorifies her. You know it. She knows it. Everybody knows it. That's the way it works. If I say, I bought you the flowers because it's the duty to buy flowers when you're a husband, that's a loser. <laughs> if I say, I bought you the flowers because it makes me happy to buy you flowers, I made arrangements for the babysitter because it makes me, happy, makes me happy to be with you tonight, she's not calling me selfish. She's calling me, thank you, thank you, you love me, you've put treasure on me, you valued me, and that's exactly what God feels on Sunday morning. When, when you walk into a worship service and you don't say, I'm here because this is what Christians are supposed to do. I read the book on discipleship. <laughs> Chapter 8. Corporate worship. One of the disciplines. I'm here. God is not honored. But if you say, why am I here? Nothing makes me happier than to know you, love you, treasure you with the brothers and sisters. So... What, what the sentence I hope you'll take away is God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. So let's be about it till he comes. Let me pray. Father, I pray that the ripple effect out from this precious people would be that hundreds and thousands of people would fall more deeply in love with you in your all satisfying nature, your beauty your power, your wisdom, your goodness, your love. So come and do that great work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.